Last week we started a new study in the book of 1 Peter. And if you were not with us, we actually went through the entire letter, read through the entire letter. We considered some introductory matters that we see in the first couple of verses. We want to just briefly just kind of remember the context for the book. Uh, Peter was writing a letter to churches that were scattered throughout the uh, five Roman provinces that comprise most of the country today that we know as the country of Turkey. Those churches in those five provinces that are listed in verses 1 and 2 um, were suffering intense persecution. And as that persecution would oftentimes do in that time, we were really immune to it, right? But how persecution works in ancient times, how it works in other places around the world, it will really test believers. Test them to the point of maybe compromising their faith, of, of hiding their faith so that they're not noticed amongst other people to minimize persecution. For some people, it will even cause them to abandon the faith altogether. And so Peter's main point in writing this letter is to call the believers in these places to stand fast and to keep the faith and to live holy lives, the lives that cause them to stand out from their pagan neighbors. Lives that will cause them to be distinct as, as stars in a bright sky. So that they are noticeable, so that they reflect the gospel amidst their godless neighbors. But to justify and emphasize the message, Peter regularly reminds these Christians to remember who they are and what God has done for them in Christ. Because God had shown them extraordinary grace through his election of them to be his people, and through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, and through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, and through the eternal inheritance that he was providing them, Peter says that they can be faithful to God even to the point of death, no matter how bad the persecution gets, even if you die for this faith. God has done something for you that will cause you to be able to stand and to endure. Peter reminds them that God had called them, God had equipped them, God had empowered them, and God had preserved them for this purpose. And this is an important lesson for us too. In fact, we were talking this week in the men's Bible study about the challenges that we face as Christians living in this world. And we made the point that Christians are to be marked out from the world. Christians are to live distinctly from the world. And yet we see such an erosion of Christian faithfulness and ethics amongst our own people. And we're not even persecuted. We're not suffering the kind of intense, fiery trials that Peter was writing, the believers that Peter was writing to. So how do we live holy lives? How do we honor God amidst this wicked and perverse generation in which we live? And part of the answer to that, I think, I think the beginning of the answer to that, as Peter indicates here, is remembering our identity in Christ. Remembering who we are. Remembering what God has done for us in Christ. And that's where Peter has started this letter. He starts it with a word of praise to God for what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. And by acknowledging the reality of what God has done for us, then we are grounded we are comforted, we are strengthened, and we are encouraged to live not just as God requires us to live, 
but as we ought to live, as He has created us to live, as He has redeemed us to live. And so this morning we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, just verses 3 through 5. And I guess I should say here that in the Greek, verses 3 to 12 is actually one sentence, okay? We're thankful for the English translators who put a period and commas in there to kind of give us a little bit of breath. But this first chapter, this first section is so rich, I'm just going to stick with the first three verses, verses 3 through 5 this morning. So hopefully you have a copy of God's Word open. You can follow along as I read and keep your Bibles open because as we go through this, we'll be looking at the passage this morning and pulling things out from it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We said last week the book of First Peter is a letter, and the Apostle Peter, when he writes his letter, is using sort of the standard format for letter writing in ancient Rome, but he's not just simply pulling the paradigm, if you will, not simply just parroting the paradigm. He's not just simply blindly following the pattern, but he is, he is adapting it and even Christianizing it so that it fulfills his purpose. He has a purpose in writing to these believers. Verse 3 begins the second, so the letter has four parts. Verse 3 begins the second part of the letter. And traditionally in this section, the second part of the letter, the writer would offer a prayer or a wish for those to whom he is writing. In a, in a secular context, it was usually someone who was praying to the gods or wishing from the gods good health or prosperity or good fortune. But Peter, like the Apostle Paul, transforms this section of the letter into a prayer to God. And in this case, it is a prayer of praise. We might use, it, uh, use the word doxology, a word of praise or a prayer of praise to God. Here, Peter is offering a, a word of praise or a prayer of praise to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is reminding his readers of what God has done for them that is praiseworthy. But even as he is offering this word of praise to God for what he has done, he is also calling his readers to join him in praising God for what he has done for them. You notice in verse 3 that the word that the, the, the sentence, the, the, this paragraph begins with the word blessed. That's a very Hebrew way of expressing praise. Reminds me of a psalm like Psalm 103, verses 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits. What's David doing there? David is calling himself to praise the Lord. In other words, he recognizes that the Lord is worthy of praise, that he must praise him, and he is exhorting himself, he is exhorting his soul, he is exhorting the very core of who he is to offer praise to the Lord. The word that Peter uses there, we translate it as blessed, is the word that comes into English as the word eulogy, right? You've been to a funeral before, you've probably heard a eulogy. What is a eulogy? A eulogy is the part of the funeral service where someone says, something good about the deceased. You, you report all of the good things that person had done, right? That's literally what the word eulogy means, to say something good about. And so Peter here is saying something good about God. He is, he is eulogizing God the Father. He is saying good things about the Father and what the Father has done for us. 
And so declare the good, to declare the goodness of God is to offer praise. As we're thinking about all of the good things that God has done for us, that should lead us to praise. Because God has done good things. God has done praiseworthy things. And so our response to the praiseworthy things, the good things that we have experienced from God, is to give Him praise. So what should we praise God for? And that's the subject of verses 3 through 5. And Peter elaborates here on why God is worthy of praise and why believers should praise God our Father and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verses 3 through 5, I think we see three reasons for praise all centered around God's working for us. In verse 3, we see that we must praise God for what He has done for us. In verse 4, we must praise God for what He will do for us. And in verse 5, we must praise God for what He is doing for us right now. And so we're going to use that as our outline this morning, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, what God has done for us, what God will do for us, and what God is doing for us. So let's look at what God's, at God's working on our behalf. And I think that by seeing God's working for us, we not only understand better who we are and what God has done for us and how we can stand in that, but we can also praise the Lord. We are motivated to praise the Lord for His gracious and glorious work in our lives. So first, what has God done for us? In verse 3, we see that Peter, after the word of praise, says, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, God, the fa- our Father, and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And so Peter tells us in that statement that God has worked a fundamental transformation in our lives. He has caused us to be born again. And Peter is making reference here to the new birth that must be a reality for any person to enter into a relationship with God. We talk about so much about a, having a relationship with God, being reconciled to God, knowing God, and having God know us. How do we enter into that relationship? How do we enter into the new covenant? It is by God causing us to be born again to a living hope. And though Peter doesn't say it explicitly, he implicitly implies that such a change, that this new birth that God has worked in us, is something that is needed by us. That we need to be born again to a living hope. And indeed, we know from the Scripture that all human beings are sinful. All human beings are under the sentence of condemnation for those sins. All human beings are destined for God's wrath on the last day. We talk about the sinfulness of man. We talk about what man deserves for his sin. Sinful people deserve God's wrath. Sinful people deserve eternal punishment. It's because we are inherently wicked. We are born with original sin and we confirm our sinful condition by our repeated acts of sin. But among His people, God has done something entirely miraculous. It says that He has caused us to be born again. And the way that Peter writes this indicates that God is the one responsible for the new birth. Think about how you got here into this world in the first place. Did you have anything to do with it? Absolutely not. None of us were responsible for our first birth. None of us were responsible for our earthly birth. And so in the same way, none of us is responsible for our spiritual birth. We didn't choose it. We didn't plan it. We didn't coordinate it. We didn't dictate it. 
Peter here is indicating that God caused our new birth. And in fact, I really love the, the way that he writes this in the Greek. That phrase, cause to be born again, could be translated as beget. We don't use that word a lot very much in English anymore, right? But if you remember your old King James translations, remember those genealogies? This guy begat his son, his son begat his son, his son begat his son. There's begats, right? All that begatting. The word born in verse 3 is passive, which means it is something that happens to you. It's not something you are responsible for. But the emphasis here is on begetting. When we use the word beget in a, in a Hebrew worldview, it emphasizes the father's role in the process of procreation. And so what Peter is saying here is that God, by his sovereign and gracious will, begat us. He brought us into this spiritual realm. He has brought us into this new birth. He has caused us to be born again. This emphasizes the point that Peter made back in verse 2, where he emphasizes that God the Father foreknew us. He cast his love upon us. He chose us. He predestined us. He foreordained us to be his people. And so why should this be encouraging for Peter's readers? Again, we need to remember the extraordinary persecution that they were suffering. This idea here that God the Father has caused them to be born again reminds them that despite whatever they are facing, despite the temptation to think that God has forsaken them or neglected them, they are still his people. He chose them. He committed himself to them. Regardless of whatever their situation might seem to indicate, God has caused them to be born again. God has brought them into this relationship. They are his people and he is their God. And so by saying this, that their state, their situation, ultimately is the result of God's work in their lives, what he has done in history, what he did to bring them to faith, that means that they can stand. They are encouraged to remain faithful to Him because they are His people. And why would this be encouraging to us? Because it reminds us that we are also are His people. God acted in eternity. God acted in history to make us His people. He chose us. He begets us. He is committed to us. And that ought to help us to stand in the world when we face various temptations and various trials, various circumstances. When we would be tempted to fall away, when we would be tempted to dishonor God, we would be tempted to walk a different path, this truth helps us to stand. It helps us to be holy as He is holy. It helps us to live the kind of lives that He has caused us to live. And even more, because of that, then we also ought to be inspired to praise the Lord as Peter does here in verse 3. Peter says that we are born again to a living hope. So not only has God given us new life, He's not only given us spiritual life, He has given us a living hope. In other words, the work that God has done has for us present and future ramifications. How do we use the word hope today, right? Hope is sort of this ambiguous state, right? It's something that we'd like to see happen, but we're not sure if it will, right? There's a lot of ambiguity involved. There's a lot of uncertainty involved, right? I hope I get a Sunday afternoon nap. Now, my plan is to do that. The trajectory of my day is bracketed out so that I will get an afternoon nap, but there's no guarantee. Something might come up. There might be an emergency to deal with. 
There might be some other matter to attend to. It's uncertain. That's not how the Bible uses the word hope. When the Bible uses the word hope, it is talking about things that are certain. Things that are real. There is an assurance that all that God has promised in His redemptive work will be fully realized as God intended. So, God saved us so that we would live with hope. That we would live with expectation. The expectation of a, of a day that God's future promises would be actually realized, right? We have hope for the future. We have expectations of what is to come. And it's not sort of this nether world out there, uncertain whether or not we're going to get there. It's a future thing, yes, but it's a certain thing. And we latch on to that hope now. So it is a living hope. We've been born again to this hope. We've been born again to this expectation, to this certainty, to this assurance. Peter is saying here that God's redemptive work in the past has provided us with a hope that sustains us today and tomorrow and the next day and the next year and the next decade for every single day for the rest of our lives until that day when we realize fully what God intended for us to realize. Now, why has God done this for us? Why has God caused us to be born again to a living hope? Why has He given us a living hope to sustain us in this day? Peter says that God has done all of this because of His great mercy. In verse 3, the prepositional phrase, according to His great mercy, could be translated here as because of His great mercy. Because of God's great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. In other words, God has saved us because of His mercy. He knew our sinful condition. He knew our condemnation. He knew the wrath awaiting us. And He had pity on us. And He had compassion upon us. Scripture teaches us that God is a merciful God. He shows His mercy not because we deserve it. Not because in somehow, some way we have merited it or earned it. But God shows us mercy because He is merciful. And He delights in showing mercy. And Peter here is again, when he says because or according to his great mercy, he is emphasizing God's role in salvation. Because we have been born again by his mercy, it means all of the initiative, all the work, all the credit belongs to God. And if God is solely responsible for our new birth, then he deserves all the glory for that birth, which is why, again, Peter opens this with a word of praise. God ought to be praised for what He has done in our lives. He has shown us mercy. We have received it. There is no contribution from our end. So what is our response? We can't do anything except to praise the Lord. And we ought to praise the Lord. How do we, know, how do we glorify God for His work? Well, one way that we glorify God, one way that we praise the Lord is by laying down our lives, our bodies, as living sacrifices. We go back to the Apostle Paul. I'm going to bring Paul in here for a second. Romans 12. We lay down our lives as living sacrifices. We, as Jesus would say, we deny ourselves. We take up our cross and we follow Him. We live in such a way that He is glorified. And what is that way? It's the way of His commands. It's the way that He has set for us. And that's what Peter's going to make clear later. I love how Peter does this. So Peter's different from Paul, right? 
Paul gives us all the doctrine in the front end and all the application in the back end. Peter here alternates back and forth. He's giving us doctrine, what God's done. He's going to give us exhortation next week. He's going to mix all this stuff in, right? How is it that we praise the Lord? It's not just by our voices. You guys sounded great this morning singing, right? It's not just by our prayers, but it's by how we live our lives. As you leave here today and go back out into the world, you praise the Lord, you worship the Lord by obeying His commands, by laying down your lives as as living sacrifices, by being holy as he is holy. And so Peter here is setting the imperative of what we must do within the indicative of who we are, right? We start from the place of what God has done. The indicative, right? You go back to grammar. You guys remember this? Indicative is a statement, right? It's a truth. It's a claim, right? What has God done for us? He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's the foundation. And from that, then, we embrace the imperative. We do the imperative. The imperative is just a command. So from the foundation of who we are in Christ, from the foundation in what God has done for us, then we go forward and we obey Him. We lay our lives down as living sacrifices for Him, for His glory. Well, how, have, how has God the Father caused us to be born again? What did He do to make the new birth a reality for us. Peter says that all this happens, if you look at verse 3, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now I want to say here that when Peter mentions the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he understands, he assumes that the crucifixion is a necessary part of that event. You can't have the resurrection without the crucifixion. And oftentimes the apostles will talk about one and they mean both things together, right? Those things are an event. We have to sort of tease them out sometimes to focus on certain aspects, but they really belong together. So by mentioning the resurrection here, Peter is pointing us to the gospel as the means by which God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So how did he practically work that out in history? Through the gospel, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the means by which we have been born again to a living hope. Okay, so how does Christ's death and resurrection cause us to be born again? Why was Christ's death and resurrection even necessary in the first place? Again, it goes back to our sin problem. If we are all sinners, and if our sin requires God's just punishment, then we are all in eternal trouble. We are all condemned. We are all deserving of God's wrath on the last day. So in order to save us from God's wrath... Something must be done about our sins, right? But as sinful human beings, we are powerless to affect that change in our lives. We can do nothing. There's nothing that we can do in our own power, our own strength, our own wisdom, by our own resources to deal with our sin problem, to remedy our sin problem. And so what did God do? Because God is merciful, he provided the only possible remedy for our sins, the death and resurrection of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrifices. He was the blameless, spotless Lamb of God. He lived the perfect life that God requires of all of us. He was the only one who was qualified to make atonement for us. And so God sent Him to the cross, and Jesus died upon the cross for our sins. And when He died, our sins were imputed to Him. He suffered God's wrath as the penalty that our sins deserve. And because He atoned for those sins... God forgave us and reconciled us to himself. 
He forgave our sins. And we entered into a new covenant relationship with Him that can never be broken. So how can we be certain that Jesus' death sufficiently atones for sin, right? How do we know that Jesus' death did, did the job? How do we know that it was sufficient? Well, that's where the resurrection comes into play. The resurrection is the proof that God accepted Christ's sacrifice. God raised Him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead proves that His death was sufficient to, to atone for our sins, to forgive us of our sins. So because of the resurrection, we know that God accepted the death of Christ. And we understand that because death could not keep Jesus in the grave, it shows that He is the one who possesses all omnipotence, all power, all victory over death. Death is the thing that human beings can't figure out, right? We can't, we can't conquer it. It's something that is, unless by God's sovereign will, Christ returns. We will all die. We, can, we, can't, we can't fix that. We can't change that. But when God raised Jesus from the dead, what other power was there available to subject Jesus? None. The resurrection shows His might, His power, His victory. There is no other enemy for Christ to conquer. They've all been conquered because He was raised from the dead. So Peter here points us to the resurrection to show us the whole gospel work that he has done, that God has done in Jesus Christ. But by highlighting the resurrection specifically, Peter is also showing us the certainty and sufficiency of God's work. Because of the resurrection, we can be assured that we are indeed born again. Because of the resurrection, we do have a living hope. We can be assured of that what God has done in the past is true. And it will sustain us in the present and see us through to the very end. So for persecuted believers who some are probably even suffering death, the reality that God the Father has caused them to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead signals that even death cannot remove them from their hope. Death cannot remove them from His love. Death cannot remove them from God's promises that He made them. And so they can persevere through every fiery trial, through every difficult situation, even to the point of death. And they can continue to live faithfully according to the Lord's Word, knowing that they have a living hope sealed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They are eternally safe and they will experience all that God has promised for them. And for us as well, though we are not persecuted, we are unduly tempted to forsake the Lord. We are unduly tempted to retreat back into the world and to return to our old sinful patterns of living. But the reality of Jesus' resurrection affirms that we are born again and that we've been given a new and living hope and that we've been given extraordinary power. We've been given extraordinary resources from God to endure any temptation. And that ought to lead us then to live lives that glorify Him. It's amazing, absolutely amazing what God has done for us in the Gospel. And it is a reason for praise. But Peter doesn't stop there. He points in verse 4 to what God will do for us that is praiseworthy. Verse 4, what, what will God do for us? Peter says that 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Peter says that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. As we pointed out just a moment ago, that while hope is a present reality, something that sustains us even now in this moment, it points us to the certainty of a future promise that will be fulfilled. Right? So hope sustains us presently by reminding us what is ours in the future, what still awaits us. And to that extent, Peter describes that future hope more fully with the word inheritance in verse We've been born again to a living hope, which he describes that in verse 4 as an inheritance. And Peter here is drawing upon Old Testament imagery. That's going to be very frequent throughout this book. Peter is drawing a lot on Old Testament imagery. The Old Testament, the, the idea of an inheritance. Think about the book of Joshua, right? When the people came into the land, they were expecting an inheritance. They received an inheritance. What was that? It was a portion of land that they could call their own. Each tribe, each family got a, a parcel and there they would live, they would settle down, they would, they would build their lives, and they would be able to experience the fruit of all the promises that God made for them in that land. That plot of land was their inheritance, it was their possession. Well, Peter tells us that God has promised us an inheritance. Our inheritance is not a gift of land, but it is a gift he gives to us simply for being his people. And if you think about it for a moment, that is an absolutely crazy idea, almost an absurd idea uh, idea that God would do this, that he would give us an inheritance, right? Remember, what do we deserve? We deserve death, right? We deserve eternal death. We deserve hell for our sins. That's what God should give to us. But God showed us mercy and he saved us from that. Boy, what a relief it is to know that we'll not go to hell because of our sins, because of what Christ has done for us. What a blessing to know that we've been spared from the worst of God's wrath. So if you imagine for a moment, people that were destined for hell, almost if you think about Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, right? Sinners in the hands of an angry God, like the, like the spider hanging by a single thread over that boiling cauldron, right? Just waiting for that, that string to snap. If you think about that and, and God pulling the spider away from that, right? Boy, that's, that's a relief, a blessing. I'm not going to get that, that fiery punishment that I deserve. If God were to just do that for us and just keep us out of hell, right? If he sent us to the far corner of heaven and says, you sit over there for the rest of your eternity. And when I call you to come serve me, you come serve me. That would be enough. That would be a million more blessings than we could ever hope for. That's not what God does, does he? He says, you'll be my people. You'll be my children. And I'm going to give you an inheritance. God is not content to make us sit in the corner of heaven. His mercy is so rich and His grace is so extraordinary that He would give us an inheritance to enjoy forever. That is, I hope that blows your mind, brothers and sisters, because we're unworthy of it. It is beyond comprehension that God would show us such grace and mercy. But He doesn't just merely give us an inheritance, right? Just give us something to kind of hold on to for eternity. He gives us a glorious inheritance that exceeds abundantly anything that we could expect or imagine. And Peter describes this inheritance in verse 4. What kind of inheritance is this? He uses three adjectives. This inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The word imperishable means that this inheritance can never perish. It can never be destroyed or taken from us. 
The word undefiled means that this inheritance can never be corrupted or changed forms. The word unfading means that this inheritance can never be diminished or lose its glory. Friends, God hasn't promised you some trinket. He offers you an inheritance. The very best gift that He could ever bestow and that one could ever enjoy. He offers us the precious inheritance of eternal life with Him. But notice again the future dimension of this inheritance. Peter provides both the time and the place, the when and the where, that this inheritance will be enjoyed. He says in verse 4 that it is kept in heaven for you, and in verse 5 that it is ready to be revealed in the last time. So this inheritance is kept in heaven, which means that the time for us to enter into it and to enjoy it fully has not yet come. It is kept in heaven. And the word kept there indicates that God is presently keeping it until the proper time, until the time of the end. But it indicates more than just that our inheritance is with God, but that God is guarding it and protecting it and preserving it until that time so that it is secure and waiting for us to take possession of it. And because it is in heaven, our inheritance is with God, giving us the assurance that it is safely guarded. This isn't something that can be stolen or corrupted or destroyed. It stands with the Lord. He is preserving it, guarding it, ready to give it to us at the last time. But again, we must wait to acquire our inheritance because it will only be revealed in the last time. The last time that Peter talks about in verse 5 points to the last day, points to the end of history, the, the consummation of the age, when, the, when the present, this present evil age will be brought to an end and God will administer His perfect judgment. And when He brings His elect people to Himself to live with Him forever. And so because our inheritance is kept in heaven, and because it will only be revealed in the last time, we must patiently wait and hope for that inheritance. We must expect it. We must anticipate it. We must be eager for it now. But we have the assurance that it is waiting for us that God will give this inheritance to us as His people. That this is His promise to us. That this is the proper and necessary fulfillment of our salvation. And until we receive that, there is still an element of our salvation that is incomplete. So why is Peter writing about a future hope to a people enduring hard persecution? He is writing to them, them this because this is their hope. This is the goal of their faithfulness. This is the end to which they labor. This is the end for which they will endure. When life is over and history ends and the world passes away, whenever these things happen, this inheritance is what will remain for them and for us. And Peter is reminding these believers about this living hope, encourages them, to keep pursuing that inheritance and not give up. And again, for us who are not enduring persecution, these things are still true. God will still give us the inheritance that He's promised. We must continue to labor faithfully so that we might finally apprehend it at the last time. That's what God will do for us. 
Finally, what is God doing for us now? What is God doing for us? In verse 5, Peter writes that we are kept, sorry, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We've seen what God has done. We've seen what God will do. But what is God doing right now? He says in verse 5 that we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So God is guarding us, right? He is keeping our inheritance in heaven with him, ready to be revealed at the last time, but he is also guarding us. The word guard and the word kept are synonyms in the Greek language, which means that as God is guarding and keeping and preserving our inheritance, he is also watching over us and keeping us and preserving us and guarding us in this life. That language seems unusual in this context because the recipients of Peter's letter are enduring persecution, right? How can they be guarded by God's power? How is God keeping them when they are facing the fiery trials and some of them even succumbing to death? I think we need to understand what Peter says here by guarding in two ways. First, God is with them in the midst of that fiery trial. Even though it seems that he has abandoned them or forsaken them, it is not true. God is with them. He knows them. He's intimately acquainted with them. He's acquainted with their suffering. And he is present with them. But secondly, I think Peter also means here that God's protection extends beyond this life. That no matter what happens to us in this life, nothing can keep them from their inheritance. Even in their persecution, God is keeping them safe and preserving them from anything that might eternally destroy them. Because they are God's people, because they are through faith, Peter says, trusting the gospel, God is keeping them from eternal harm. So Peter exhorts his readers here to, through faith, keep trusting in the Lord. Now how is God guarding them? Peter affirms that these believers are being guarded by God's power. God is preserving His people by His power. And think about what God's power is, right? God's power is almighty. God's power is omnipotent. God's power is total and supreme. It is perfect and invulnerable. There is no power greater than His. And His power is all-sufficient to accomplish His purposes. That means, then, that we are kept supremely safe in God's power. Even as we live amidst persecution or temptation, God is unleashing His power continually in this present moment. And from moment to moment, until His purposes for us are fully realized. We have no fear that we will succumb to the pressures placed upon us in this life because God is guarding us by His power. So God's power sustains our hope even more. It gives us gives that hope even more credibility. Not only that we have it, but God is guarding us and keeping it, so He must be working to make it a real thing for us. That when, when, when the things that we're looking forward to are actually going to come to pass, because we're being kept by His power. Being guarded by God's power means that we have confidence in God and what He is doing in our lives, even if we can't see it. Even we can't see how God is working from moment to moment, the fact that we are guarded by God's power gives us hope that He is 
working in our lives. It is His power that not only guards us and keeps us, but it is His power that also sustains us so that we can endure in true faithfulness. Now, why is God guarding us by His power right now? Well, Peter says that God is powerfully and perfectly preserving us so that we might enter into the fullness of salvation. And so here again, we see that future dimension of our salvation. Salvation is not just the forgiveness of sins. It's not just having a present relationship with God. It's not just the promise of eternal life. Though we do have now and we taste the first fruits of our salvation, we understand that it's still incomplete and unfulfilled. There's a glory to our salvation that we have not yet realized. But brothers and sisters... It is coming. And we have the assurance that we will enter into it. But until that day, Peter says that we must hope in it with a living hope. And it's that hope that motivates us to live out the the holy calling he has placed on our lives in this moment. In his letter, Peter is calling his readers to do a very hard thing. And he's calling us to do a very hard thing. He's calling us to be holy as God is holy. He's calling us to walk in Christ's steps. He's calling us to endure suffering and temptation. He's calling us to live as Christians. That's a hard thing to do. Whether we're faced with persecution or temptation or the worldly ethos of this present evil age. But this is what we must do because God has called us to this. God has commanded us to this. And God has destined us for this. But the Holy Spirit reminds us through Peter that we can do this. We can be faithful. We can be holy. Not because we have the ability, but because of what God has done for us, what God is doing for us, and what God will do for us. And it's that orientation, it's that framework that gives us the grace and the hope and the resources to endure no matter what. So brothers and sisters, walk out who you are in Christ. Walk out what God has done for you in Christ. Walk out what God has provided to you in Christ. Walk out what He has promised to you in Christ. This is who we are. And we are able, by God's power, by God's resources, to walk in this way. And for all of this, as Peter says, may God be praised. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we join him in that word of praise. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word always. Every word, every jot and tittle is true. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's given to us for our learning and our edification. And I pray, Lord, that as we have heard your word and submitted ourselves to you this morning, that we at the same time submit our lives, Lord, to what has been written. That we submit not simply to the hearing of the word, but also to the doing of it. Father, I pray, I praise you for what you have done for us in Christ. I praise you that our sins have been forgiven. I praise you that you have caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. 
I praise you, Lord, that we have been brought into a new relationship with you. I praise you that we have an inheritance that is imperishable and incorruptible and undefiled, waiting in heaven for us. I praise you, Lord, that you are guarding not only that inheritance, but even us in these days, continuing to do your sovereign, redemptive, sanctifying work in us until that day when we are ready to enter into the fullness of our salvation. Lord, may you help us to be that holy people. Thank you for all that you've done for us. We praise you. We glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.